Welcome to the Back in Business podcast. I'm business journalist, broadcaster and podcaster, Mickey Clark. And I'm small business journalist, Liz Barkley. And we're in Cambridge, metaphorically speaking, I suppose, <laughs> at the heart of the high technology Silicon Fen, I think it's been called, with industries such as software and bioscience and many startup companies born out of Cambridge University. Uh, more than 40% of the workforce have a higher education qualification in Cambridge, and that's more than twice the national average. It's the seat of learning and innovation, Mickey. Well, yeah, I wouldn't say that too loud in Oxford, of course. Um, <laughs> you forgot to mention that the first game of association football took place at Parker's Place and peace. the annual... Parker's Peace. Peace, peace, peace. Peace of this, peace of that, yeah. And the <laughs> annual Cambridge Beer Festival, now that's more my scene, um, takes place on Jesus Green. Maybe, maybe we'll never get an invitation. Never heard of either of them, but there you go. <laughs> what? Have you never been to Cambridge? It's an absolutely beautiful city. I went to Oxford. Uh, uh, let's not dwell For on the day. <laughs> <laughs> And they didn't let you back. No. <laughs> I think I think the fact that you came up with association football and the uh, Cambridge and the Cambridge Beer Festival yeah. rather indicates that we do different sorts of research <laughs> podcasts. <Yeah. laughs> but yeah. can I just say one of the big issues for me this week was the Resolution uh, Foundation report that says that about two million people haven't worked for more than six months, either because they're out of a job or because they've been on full furlough. Um, that's going to have all sorts of implications. And it's not just economic implications that we, you know, we've been talking about that. But this is going to be emotional implications too. How do you find the confidence to go back to work after long-term absence like that? Well, you, you just have to come up with it. I mean, I, I did it once for a year back in the um, early 80s, um, when I was paid to stay off work for a year, um, as was everybody else on the paper I worked for. And um, you do lose your confidence. Your life is put on hold because you can't plan anything. I mean, people say, oh, it's great. You're getting fully paid staying at home. But it's not everyone's whizzing past you um, in career terms. And, of course, when it comes to planning anything to do with your home, you're wondering, will I have a job at the end of this mess? Um, you know, there's all those sorts of things going through. And what these figures don't tell you is, yeah, two million people basically on furlough. How many of them are wrapped up in the hospitality industry? How many of them work in pubs and restaurants? Will they have jobs to come back to once lockdown is over? Because at the moment, it's all being propped up by furlough. There's no guarantee that these businesses are, are actually fit for purpose anytime soon so yeah there's a lot of question marks there a lot of uncertainty and a lot of emotional turmoil for for, for many families nobody's ever paid me to to stay off work they've just sacked me <laughs> <laughs> i must have worked for the wrong newspaper well this is when i had a salary job yeah p-a-y-e it doesn't happen these days <laughs> but then on the other hand another thing i noticed this week was the business confidence index from the institute of chartered accountants of england and wales and that shows that confidence for the year ahead is really well up on what it was this time last year so businesses and we've been hearing this from the businesses we've talked yeah well where, where are you starting from as regards last year um, if you didn't have an economy any confidence so that, that's the problem facing uh, those sort of things. I think you've got to take it with a pinch of salt, to be perfectly honest, a lot of this economic news that comes out at the moment, because this isn't 
This isn't real times, is it? I mean, this isn't real life. You take everything with a pinch of salt. You take everything with a bucket of salt. You're the most cynical person I think I've ever met when it comes to figures. Know what you said about GDP last week. That's just rubbish. They don't tell us anything. Can I... <laughs> Can we bring in Declan Curry, our business editor, and Simon McVicker, our director of public affairs policy and communications? Uh, what have you picked up on this week, Simon? Do you well, want to uh, start? Uh, I mean, I do think that there is uh, a growing sense of optimism due to the fact that the vaccine rollout is going so well, and you know the prime minister is making this big speech next week where he's going to. Uh, give us a roadmap of how we come out of the pandemic and lockdown. And uh, people are getting more optimistic about things like summer holidays, etc. But I do think that, you know, it's going to be slowly um, and we will go back bit by bit. And I was reading yesterday, for instance, that pubs and restaurants and that sort of sector, they will be last to go back and, and they're not going to be allowed to open maybe before May, June time. So those sort of businesses are still going to be under extreme pressure. The other thing, of course, is the budget's coming up uh, on the 3rd of March. Um, we are hoping to hear some sort of strategy about how we move forward under, under the government. Uh, last night or yesterday, uh, Labour tried to seize the initiative with Keir Starmer, um, laying out what Labour would do. I don't think we, I don't actually think we are any really that much wiser, but it is interesting from, from somebody who's been around for a long time to hear a very pro-business uh, approach, a very pro-business language from the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, I don't think we've heard, you know, stuff like this since Blair, really. And um, so maybe there's an opportunity here um, to work with the opposition as well as the government to try and get a package we like. Um when you say yesterday, of course, we're recording this on Friday and then sure, it'll yeah. go up on the yeah. site on yeah, yeah. Monday. So it'll yeah. have been mulled over, I suppose, by the Sunday newspapers. But Declan, what did you take from Keir Starmer's speech? Is it really pro-business? I didn't well, think there was much detail to pin anything on. The, the t It was all about the tone, wasn't it, rather than the actual substance. In, in terms of the length of a parliament, this is fairly early. Uh, in the duration of this parliament to start setting out concrete proposals. And I think those with long memories in the Labour Party will remember uh, that in the run-up to the 1992 election, when Neil Kinnock was repositioning the party with the whole Labour listens uh, exercise in the late 1980s, that started laying out policies as early as 1988. By the time you got to the election in 1992, they all seemed like old hat. Uh, so they they may well be holding specifics back for closer to the time. I think what, what struck me during the week was that whilst we're still focused on fighting coronavirus and rolling out the vaccine, those big long-term trends in business continue to change the world around us. And these are the things we would be talking about were it not for COVID and all its uh, manifestations. And the big one this week was uh, the impact of climate change on business. We had Jaguar Land Rover saying that all its Jaguars are going to be electric only. Uh, the new cars are going to be electric only by 2025. Land Rover is electric only by, I think, 2030, they said. And then later in the week, the really big one from Ford talking about it spending 15 
billion pounds around the world, uh, going first of all to a mix of hybrid and electric, and then by 2030 in Europe, electric only. These changes in business are taking huge amounts of investment. And for the car industry, it's really tricky at the moment because they've had a huge slump in sales because of coronavirus. They're having to find all this extra money to pay for the reinvention of their product uh, as a, an electric uh, vehicle. But at the same time, keep the petrol and diesel running to get us from now to then. It's a big challenge. I, so, I, so they're being rushed into it, Declan. I mean, three years ago, I interviewed the chairman of Jaguar Land Rover and he confidently said to me, we don't need hybrids or electrics because our biggest market is China and they only want petrol and diesel. And the cars that are being offered for sale now by car makers are not fit for purpose. We don't have the charging points. We don't have the capacity to generate the power required to charge those points. And who's going to pay for it all? And this is where the car companies come and say, oh, we're going to have all electric by two, 2025. It's an absolute pie in the sky. But Mickey, don't forget alongside that, you've got BP and Shell, which have also said in recent weeks that they're spending billions building up that charging network for electric cars. Shell is become, becoming an increasingly electric company as well as oil and gas. Because they can see big chunks of their business, i.e. garage forecourt, disappearing yeah. out the window. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they've I, got I, to do something about it. I, I was talking to a Conservative MP yesterday and two things struck me. One, that she said that she felt that taxes would have to go up, um, but not at this budget, but would have to go up. But they would go up in areas that would enhance the government's policy, say, around the environment. So she would see petrol uh having be taxed more. Uh, so, so the taxes will, in, will create the environment where maybe the electric cars will become more popular. The other thing she said is that Boris knows that once he opens up this time, he will not be allowed to lock down again. This is it. And she said, so that is why you've seen this uber cautiousness from him at the moment. And, uh, you know, uh, he is going to be really, really certain that he's got things under control before he lets, lets things open up again. Well, we're in Cambridge and we're in the heart of technology. So let's talk technology and see what's going on here. Um, what's it like being, being like for small businesses? Everything we've been told about businesses and by businesses, I think, uh, at the forefront of tech would lead us to believe that things should be booming in Cambridge. And of course, it's widely regarded as the largest biotech hub or one of them outside the US. And it features more than 750 life science companies. And I think that figure might be a bit out of date. I think it might be more than that now. But it's home to many international pharmaceutical giants like uh, AstraZeneca even. Tim uh, Robinson is Chief Operating Officer of Tech East. Uh, that, and Tim has a finger on the pulse of what's happening, not just in Cambridge, but Norwich and Ipswich, uh, around about the east of England. And Darren Milne is CEO of VividQ, which is a deep tech software company. Darren, I haven't got a clue what that means, but you have world-leading expertise in computer-generated holography. I think that's the right way of saying it. Um, this is all a bit of a grand sounding introduction. You're running a small startup firm here in Cambridge. Why Cambridge? Uh, yeah, that's right. So, uh, well, originally Cambridge was uh, where the team sprang up. 
Uh, we were all based out of the University of Cambridge in the photonics lab there. And it seemed a natural place to start because there's plenty of technology ecosystem here. There's plenty of funding available for startups to at least get them off the ground. And so we, uh, we emerged out of the Cambridge lab, set up shop at the top of Castle Hill, and uh, then just started to attract uh, more staff from the university and from other surrounding companies. And then when we got venture funding, of course, this is, this is a great place to do that. So uh, we decided to stay. And now we've grown to over 30 people and, uh, and just keep on picking up momentum here. Uh, and since, since our entire customer base is in the US and in the Far East, uh, you know, it's, it's a great place to be right in the middle. We can straddle time zones. It means some early mornings, some late evenings, but there we go. We get the best of both worlds. So Tell us about the, the, um, the funding, because I, I remember people I used to work, colleagues I used to work with who disappeared to Cambridge back in the late 80s, early 90s. And they weren't technology minded, but they were into finance, providing funds for small startup companies. Um, is that still the case? Is there still plenty of support out there for funding? There is at what I'd call the very early stage. So if you're wanting funding to get off the ground, there's a very good network. You have things like the Cambridge Angels and Cambridge Enterprise, which can support you straight out of your university project or your two guys in a garage kind of setup. Uh, what we've noticed in, in the UK, at least, is you do hit kind of a stumbling block when you want to get to that next level. So in the UK, typically, if you want to go raise your, your Series A round, which is usually your big institutional finance. And round, how much sort of money are we talking about? Uh, that, that can vary depending on the company, but that could be something as low rough, as... Rough ballpark. Yeah, yeah, that could be anything from 2 million up to 20 million, depending on the type of company. So let's take for us, for example, we're a software company, so we're pretty light on expenses. All our expenses are basically staff. So a Series A for us would be, you know, ballpark 5 to 10 million. Uh, now, in order to get that, uh, you need to show serious commercial traction. You need to have customers coming in. You need to be showing that uh, you've got product market fit. Revenue. Things. Yeah, serious revenue to the, to the tune of, of a million recurring a year. These are the usual metrics. Unfortunately for companies like ours, these metrics really don't apply. Uh, so we, as said in the introduction, are a deep tech company. This means the product that we're making is, has got a long lead time to market. We don't expect or even plan to make any significant revenue for another couple of years until our product is really ready for release en masse, at which point we expect the classic hockey stick profile. Now, this is something they're very used to in the US ecosystem. They're used to having a company run for three or four years, developing, building, making the product great, then hitting the market all in a on a big splash and making a lot of money up front. Uh, our model is like that, but it makes us a little more, more of a difficult prospect for the UK ecosystem, which relies on revenue now in order to hit those metrics in order to secure those bigger funding rounds. And so I think it's been noted a few times that uh, there is a bit of a gap in the UK uh, ecosystem where you can get that early stage funding, get you off the ground, but accessing that bigger Series A funding is a bit of a challenge for anyone doing deep tech or, or companies based on some serious science that require a little longer time to market. Well, you're talking serious tech here. Have you been impacted at all by COVID? Oh, yes. Uh, so uh, thankfully, we are on the software side. So we were able to send all our developers home, make sure they all have the equipment they need, and they were able to continue on. 
Uh, our company is a little interesting in that we also do have a bit of a hardware component. So we do develop hardware prototypes. So you mentioned, again, we're doing holographic display and, uh, and one has to make a holographic display in order to show that. So we do develop these things as well. And so we've been having to maintain at least a skeleton crew in our lab in order to continue that work. But the main impact we saw actually was from uh, customer projects dropping. So while we're, while we're on the road to achieving scale, we are collaborating with uh, partners all across the world to develop out uh, hardware and, uh, and software solutions in order to manage our ecosystem. Uh, but unfortunately, COVID did put a delay on a lot of those projects. Thankfully, we're seeing them pick up now, but especially in the automotive sector, uh, many of them just said, I'm afraid we're stopping any external funding for the year. We'll see in 2021. Tim, um, given the fact that you have a, a finger on the pulse of what's going on around about the whole of East of England, is is Darren's experience typical? Well, I think um, Darren's what Darren's describing as a software company that you know relatively resilient to the effects of COVID is yes, is absolutely true. Um, I mean, certainly we've heard about. Uh, companies who were expecting to have some client contract uh, work that was delayed. It probably has now come through. Um, uh, but I think on the flip side of that, there have been some categories of uh, certainly tech, tech businesses that have been doing really, really well. Um, certainly anyone around e-commerce or um, helping actually helping other businesses get online and do business online have, have been doing well. And, and that that's everything from designing the user experience of a website through to, you know, enabling a small business to do payments. And I suppose what I would say to, you know, to sort of perhaps build on what, what Darren was saying is that there are a relatively small number of businesses, often concentrated in Cambridge, but also in other parts of the region, Norwich and so on, who are those very, very hot, early stage, very high potential startups that have the potential, you know, to, to, to become uh, sort of billion dollar companies. And then, and then there are, the, there are the, 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 the much larger number of small and micro businesses that kind of make up the tech ecosystem. And it, it does vary, I think, what type of business you are as to how you fared over the last 12 months. Then the, the, the situation, I was gonna ask about COVID because Darren talked about the problems that COVID has presented, but at the same time, may I say, you pointy heads have never had so much publicity. Um, you know, Oxford is on everyone's lips, whereas a year ago it wouldn't have been. And all of a sudden people are becoming aware that we have a great depth of talent in this country, not only for technology, but for biochemistry um, as well. And it's something that perhaps we need to channel more attention to and certainly more funding. I mean, if you can't do it now, you boys, you never will, will you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a, it's been a kind of hero year, hasn't it, for <laughs> uh, British scientists? Well, actually, scientists all over the world in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, creativity and collaboration and, and the speed at which things have been achieved. Um, certainly, uh, Oxford's, um, Oxford's probably done very well from a brand perspective, but, you know, AstraZeneca, based in Cambridge, um, uh, I think the question I would ask is, is, you know, on the tech side, how much true sort of groundbreaking innovation has actually reached the market in the last year compared within the life sciences? 
Um, and I know we've seen quite a lot of disappointment, I suppose, with some of the sort of digital apps and things for managing COVID that, you know, perhaps haven't delivered quite what, what was promised. So um, I think I think the next the next couple of years are going to be interesting. I mean, it, the announcement just from government, the new ARIA, Advanced Research and Invention Agency, 800 million pounds of funding for high risk science. I mean, that's going to help a bit. I'm not sure that it's enough to compete with China, but you know, <laughs> Darren's shaking his head there. No, it's it's, it's <laughs> dropping the dropping the ocean. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, uh, if you look at the stats, there's eight times more venture funding available in Silicon Valley than the whole of Europe. That's how far behind we are in terms of ecosystem. Uh, so, the UK is phenomenal at creating uh, brilliant people who have amazing ideas and then getting them to a certain stage and then selling them wholesale to the US. Giving them a commercial edge, basically. Well, often not even that. They'll build up the technology to the point where it's attractive for a large US company just to swallow them. So if you wonder why there's no big UK tech giant, that is why. Uh, as soon as they get to something interesting enough, they just get bought by Google or Facebook or any of these guys. We tell our investors we want to be the next, well, the first big UK tech giant, rival those guys. And we really believe it, but it means we have to ward off acquisitions from all those as we go and not... And, and, and this is what happened in the drug industry, of course, that we had a lot of smaller companies here and bigger companies found it was easier, cheaper to go out and buy the small companies that spent all their time developing a drug than develop it themselves. And yeah. that's why we've got so few now. I mean, AstraZeneca, for instance, Zeneca is born out of ICI. It was, you know, developed part of ICI, which was sold once again. So you're saying that this that, is going to repeat. How do we stop that happening again? Yeah, same question, I suppose. It, it's a good question. Uh, you almost saw the, the acquisition of ARM by NVIDIA uh, last year. And that's, uh, ARM is arguably the only large big UK tech firm in that kind of like really advanced semiconductor space. And, uh, and yeah, there was almost nothing done really to stop that happening. Uh, and certainly we've, we've worked a bit with ARM and they, uh, they were definitely restructuring in order to make, make that happen. So they seem very serious about it. Uh, and it just seems to be the way UK companies go at the moment. How we stop it? Well, we need, uh, we need a lot more investors that can, can see a way to building large companies here rather than just letting them get bought up and taken over to the States. Is it, a bad, is it a bad thing? Why do we care who owns? Uh, that's, that is a good question. And uh, for the purposes of the company and the founders and the investors, actually, these large acquisitions are fine. Uh, it's just that we don't, get, uh, we don't get anybody representing the UK, I guess, on the, on the global scale, on the level of Zuckerberg or any of those kinds of guys. Uh, you also don't get a say in what you're allowed to develop and design, of course. Uh, yeah, exactly. Once you get bought up by Google, I'm afraid you're following a Google agenda. Uh, you no longer get to dictate how your product goes or, or what you do. Um, I suppose my question was, was a bit similar to Declan's, but Tim, do you think that small businesses come to Cambridge, the east of England, or to Oxford, because Oxford we've mentioned, and Shoreditch in London, um, in order to get bought up because they think that's the right place to be? Well, I mean, I think Liz, there's a sort of two-part question. Is like, you know, there's the there's the right place to be bit, which I think, you know, I mean, D D Darren's business is an example of one that, that sort of thrives in the Cambridge ecosystem because the Cambridge ecosystem has kind of got all the all the components, all the ingredients that you need. So talent and you know um, access to 
finance and a sort of peer group of other successful businesses and mentors, people who've done it already. And, um, you know, I, th I think that, and, and, it, and, it, and it breeds success. Um, I think that effect you see to a, a smaller extent and a lesser extent in other parts of the East of England. Um, there's definitely a, there's definitely a, a, a bit that needs to happen before a, a city can really take off, I think, which is that you have to have one or two companies do extremely well, get pretty big, and then sell up or, 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 or have an IPO so that the original founders and the original team, you know, the early members and the investors kind of get some money out that they can reinvest in new companies or go on to start new ones. And, you know, that's happened. I mean, Dark Trace is a good example of that. That Dark Trace is headed towards IPO. Um, you know, that, that, uh, that, that, that has a direct lineage back to autonomy and, you know, that effect we've seen happen in other cities like Edinburgh with Skyscanner, with their exit created, what, 100 millionaires overnight in Edinburgh. Um, so Cambridge has got that effect, whereas perhaps other parts of the region haven't yet. So we do need to see a bit of that. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg. You know, if founders sell a bit, maybe too early, some might argue, um, then at least that is creating some money that can be plowed back into the ecosystem. So, so that's not a bad thing. In terms of do people come to Cambridge to sort of, to find the magic, uh, you know, the, 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 you know the, the, the deals or the investment? I'm not, I'm not so sure that, 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 that that's, that's, that's a, a major factor. Certainly it's a good place to start and you will get big companies, um, you know, opening, you know, a, uh, Having buying a, buying a business in Cambridge and having a presence in Cambridge, but you know, I suppose what I would say in summary would be that the UK is a pretty small place geographically, and actually, it's probably more helpful to look at the whole of the UK in terms of its its attractiveness. And I think it has proved massively attractive. It is the third biggest ecosystem behind um, Silicon Valley for tech. Um, and will it carry on growing? I mean, are do we have the skills? Uh, everybody on this podcast knows that skills are always at the forefront of my mind. But do we have the skills in the UK, you know, whether or not they sit in Cambridge, Oxford, Shoreditch or wherever it happens to be, to really stay at that, the forefront like that? Well, um, there is an answer to that that's no, in the sense that there's a big skill. There is a big skills gap in tech. I think, you know, there's always a... There's always a shortage of, 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 of you know, develop really good software developers and data scientists and 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 you know, increasingly people AI practitioners. Um, Cambridge probably suffers less than other parts of the UK in that regard because it's got such a good talent pipeline through not just the University of Cambridge but also the Anglia Ruskin University there. The you know, there's there's the whole further education thing. You know, the pipeline's good and people coming to Cambridge from around the world, of course, is a, is a, is a massive factor. But in other, parts of, uh, in other parts of the region, I'd say that there is, a, there is a challenge around skills. We do need to get more, well, we certainly get, need to get more uh, young people interested in careers in STEM. We need to get more girls entering the, uh, you know, uh, kind of getting into the sciences and entering, entering the professions. Uh, we need to do better at finding ways for people who are in the middle of their careers and maybe need to change jobs and retrain. Um, and, you know, there's some good stuff happening, but it's not really enough. It's not at scale. And how, how would you do that? I mean, do, do you wait for them to come out the front door 
Michael House or some other college in Muggham, or do you go into the schools, the the, the colleges, um, or just advertise? I mean, how do you get these people? Do they all need university degrees, or is some of it down to common sense? You see, Mickey always has the direct attack. <laughs> I guess it depends on the business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, so for us, uh, do you need a degree? Uh, no, but you need the kind of skills that are usually picked up in a degree, or, or actually, for a good number of our staff, PhD, uh, because we are more in that uh, research side, I suppose, in, in some elements of our business. Uh, so we have, I, I think, ten PhDs across a variety of disciplines at this point. Uh, and that's that's the kind of people we we tend to have to hire, at least on the on the technical side. Um, now, in terms of how we do that, uh, yeah, w one can do university careers days, uh, although there haven't been many of many of them this year. Uh, so we've had to resort to good old recruitment agencies on the whole, and just advertising via platforms like LinkedIn, and that that tends to attract them. Uh, I I find that uh, the kind of people we want to attract who are interested in working for a startup, which is a different, very different prospect from working from a large corporate. Uh, they tend to have their eye on um, platforms that advertise startup posts. Uh, people, we only really want to take people who are really keen on that kind of lifestyle of not having a very rigid corporate structure, things being kind of loose and easy, but uh, also extremely high pressure at times uh, where you know, you'll go from things are great to uh, we need to work solely for three months to get this thing done for a customer. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit different from uh, from standard hiring, I think. So there's a there's an attitude element to your recruitment as well. Yeah, that's, we that's we hugely have, important. Yeah, we have had some uh, some real real fails on the on the recruitment uh, side where we have taken people who on paper looked great and literally left inside a day uh, because they they just didn't like the the less structured approach that you get in an early stage startup compared to. Uh, compared to a large company. You mean the greasy pole wasn't there? Uh, for it not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say it doesn't only happen in, in the tech sector. I, that's my biggest fail as well. Yeah. Get in the middle of a newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But we know, we're told that health tech, AI, robotics, you know, that's where the jobs of the future are going to lie. And that tech basically eats other jobs. But is that really the case? Is that... Is this where we need to be focusing? Um, and are we going to see so many of these jobs replacing job jobs? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I think that it's been fairly conclusively shown now that uh, for every job you replace with automation, you create two or three new jobs and having to fix that thing that now has to automate it. Uh, I think there hasn't been any evidence to show that you actually decrease the total pool of jobs. What it does do is shift focus of those jobs, I suppose. So you, you have a shift towards uh, people needing a different skill set. And that's that I think in the short term is is the painful hurdle to get over. But uh, it does make industries more efficient, does it not? Of course. It makes them more efficient and yes. and and frees people up from having to do the kind of tasks that I guess are on the more mundane side of life. Uh, and they can they can go and hopefully reskill and uh, get onto something that's that's hopefully more interesting, fulfilling for them. But of course, that is that is a big ask for somebody who's maybe later on in their career being asked, well. You used to do this, and now you need to reprogram this machine that we gave you. That's that, of course, is really tough. And we do don't you, structure to do that. Do you, do you come up with an idea, develop it, 
and then sell it to the corporates and say, if you use this machine, it will make your business more efficient? Or is there a case that the companies will say, look, we need to overcome this problem. We need technology. We need investment. We will pay for you to, to develop something that will help us in the long run. Is that a case or is it all short termism, which is the, what I usually find with corporate UK? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the, the luxury of being in the, the deep tech side of the world is we get to be that long term prospect. Uh, we never go in promising this will be the thing that makes your business better or sells you more product this year. We're uh, in two years or three years or even in some cases five to ten years. This will be the dominant technology. You need to be on board with this. And if you're not, your competitors are going to eat you up. So that's I mean, the, the car industry is a classic example of that, yeah. isn't it? You never see anybody now on a production line. It's all robots. Yeah. Whereas years ago, you had the bloke who, you know, fixed the rear view mirror on and then went to the next one. And that's all revolutionized. So it can be done, can't it? It's just a question of investment once again. Exactly. Yeah. And the car industry, in, in, uh, car industry is kind of interesting as well in that uh, uh, we're seeing more and more that the car companies are focusing on kind of the in-car experience, the, what's going on in the cabin rather than uh, old metrics like what's your torque or what's your horsepower. These become far less relevant in the age of electric cars. Uh, so way more focus is placed on driver experience. You know, what's the infotainment system? What's your visualization? And this is where we come in, of course, because we want to put holographic displays in cars. And so this is not something you're going to see next year or the year after, but in three, four years, you will. And you'll be sitting there with a holographic passenger or, or, or some characters dancing on your, on your dashboard or showing safety navigation and so forth outside the car. And that's going to be the big thing that sells cars in the future. But you need the skills for that technology now. So what yeah. my my big concern is that the government, Tim, keeps saying, look, there will be new jobs coming along, but you can't take a chef out of a shut restaurant and make him into an AI specialist or somebody who can build robots um, in a, sh a short space of time. And people don't want to be out of work, even temporarily. You know, So how do we get over that? hurdle you know we've already uh, mentioned uh, earlier on two million people out of work already for six months how do we in the short term shift the skills that we've got to the skills that we need well i think there's a number of things that have to have to be done uh, i mean you're quite right liz in that um not every not everybody is is going to have the uh, kind of necessarily the right attributes or the or, or, or uh, aspirations to become a um, a tech person, um, and 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 it would be it would be bizarre if everybody did want to. I mean, it would be a monoculture. But 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 tech companies, um, you know, we, we're talking among tech companies here. I think mainly um, need a lot of skills other than just um, scientific and digital skills. They need to have salespeople and marketing people and uh, finance people and operational people who have you know, a variety, a variety of other, you know, have a variety of other skills in order to grow those big businesses of the future. Um, and, you know, I think there is some, you know, there has been some evidence in Cambridge, for example, uh, I think we've talked about it already, that those early stage companies, you know, very good at creating startups, they get to a certain scale, and then, and then, and then, and then they, then they exit. Well, in order to lead businesses to become big businesses, you do need experience, uh, you know, leadership and sales and marketing expertise as well, and increasingly creative skills, you know, design skills. Darren's talking about, you know, the in-car experience. So 
there are lots of people working in tech businesses at a very senior level who've got a background in the arts and the humanities. Um, that's all. That's all good. Um, but in the short term, yes, I mean, there's, there needs to be enormous investment, I think, in, in, in retraining and, and, and upskilling. Uh, we need to get apprenticeships working properly, in, particularly in this sector. They're still very difficult if you're a small business to, 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 to kind of take on apprenticeships. Um, and, and just looking at the state of, you know, university education and schools being closed, I mean, there's going to be a knock-on. There's definitely going to be a knock-on effect over the next two or three years of people who should have been coming into the market, the jobs market, with everything in place, who aren't going to have all those things in place because of the delays. So, who's going to pay for all that? Is it is it government funding? In which case, government funding always falls short. Well, I suppose one could argue that um, government has demonstrated that it can act very, very quickly with furlough particularly and a lot of the kind of uh, other instruments that were sort of announced last year, furlough schemes still ongoing. I mean, I think there's definitely an argument for tapering out of furlough and, 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 and putting, but putting similar levels of investment into, into, into reskilling and, retra and retraining. There has to be. Otherwise, we're going to have an absolute kind of crisis in the jobs market. Well, I can't see how we can avoid a crisis in the jobs market. In the uh, meantime, Declan saying, in the meantime, some tech companies inventing a cooking robot. <laughs> but just, just on a general look at Cambridge, you know, we're talking about the tech there, but if you actually take the city itself, is it as affected as everywhere else? I mean, are you seeing shuttered, I mean, of course you're seeing shuttered restaurants and pubs because they're shut. They can't. But, you know, do you feel that the city centre of Cambridge is going to be hollowed out in the way that we're worried that other cities may find these places not reopening again? No, I don't think so. Uh, not, Cambridge will be saved by the university uh, in that you'll still have a significant student body that will need all these amenities open and available. So I, I think university towns in general will be will be OK because of that. Uh, Down and gown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you when you have twenty five to thirty twenty five thousand to thirty thousand students who are all going to flock back there once lockdown is lifted, I think local businesses will be okay off the back of that. Uh, maybe not back to where they were, but uh, certainly in a better state than non university towns. As long as those students have any money to spend, uh, let's face it, <laughs> a lot of them are in pretty dire straits, having spent a lot of money on education that doesn't exist. No. Um, Okay, we, we need, I suppose we need to wind up because, because we, we, on these podcasts, we do keep talking right up to the wire. Um, what do you want to see in the budget? What do you think we need to see, I suppose, in the budget to keep or not Cambridge see, as and, the case may be. and, sorry? Or not see as the case may be, or such not as see tax as rises. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in order to keep Cambridge and Oxford and Shoreditch and so on at the forefront of the technical revolution. Well, I mean, uh, I think we've talked about we talked about skills. I think that's 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 got to be that's got to be a huge a huge part of it because at the moment, you know, it feels like the economy is treading water and um, looking forward beyond hopefully beyond the end of next year, uh, some significant investment there. I mean, I think from the sort of tech, certainly from a sort of tech ecosystem point of view, um, you know having a 
now that we've exited the European Union, it's it's time to see uh, government really pushing forward with the Shared Prosperity Fund um, uh, and, and announcing what's going to replace all that European structural funding that, that, that we used to take advantage of. There's, there's not a lot of clarity around that. Clearly, in, in terms of building, sort of building the infrastructure that you need to build tech businesses on, so incubators and accelerator programs and uh, mentoring and investor networks, all that requires nurturing. And at the moment, I think we're, wait we're, we're waiting to hear what that's going to look like. Because, I mean, the east of England, I think it's worth just noting this. While, while, while places like Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire, you know, are absolute economic hotspots, lots of tech companies, lots of life sciences companies, lots of advanced manufacturing, there are large parts of the east of England that are uh, deprived, um, very rural in some cases. And, uh, you know, we heard a lot about levelling up and haven't heard a great deal about levelling up of late. And the East of England isn't, isn't exempt from that levelling up agenda. That's, that's not just about the Northeast. It's also got to be driving, you know, coastal towns and some of the rural areas particularly. Uh, probably nothing more significant than that. I agree in, in general that the idea of having, uh, having more sponsorship for incubators, uh, I think uh, one of the... One of the things that may, people may be driven to uh, out of necessity is starting their own businesses. If they can't reskill in something like, you know, say being able to program an AI, which is beyond what I guess most people can do uh, easily within the, within the time span, is you know they may have to open up their own businesses uh, where there's where their company they they had started they were with has closed uh, doing the same thing. But that requires a lot of expertise that most employees will never have had, like even things like how to set up your company in the first place, how you set up PAYE, all these uh, background functions that most people have no clue on. Having some support for that, as I say, via incubators or, or startup programs, that might be a good way to start incentivizing people to just do it themselves, get themselves back on their feet and, and get going. Well, uh, Tim and Darren, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Tim Robinson from Tech East and Darren Milne from VividQ, thank you for joining us. Um, and of course, as Mickey says, we certainly don't want any tax rises. <laughs> I hope the chance. I hope the chancellor is listening. Uh, Simon, is the chancellor listening? <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's your job to make a Ch <laughs> Chancellor and next Prime Minister. Question mark. I, I, well, I think I think this year will make or break, Richie. Um, I'm not expecting tax rises in this budget coming up. Um, but he might actually say the expectation is the taxes will have to go up. But, it, you know, where those tax rises will be is anybody's guess. Um, Tory MPs will not want direct taxation to go up, that's for sure. But um, just um, breaking news during this uh, broadcast, we're just hearing the Supreme Court has unanimously ruled against Uber and in favour of two drivers that took them to court in 2016 for workers' rights. And, um, I mean, this is a developing story, but... Um, this is a huge loss for Uber. Um, it means now the likelihood is that they're going to have to treat all their drivers as workers. And that means they're going to be um, entitled to holiday pay. Costs go through the roof. Uh, costs are going to go through the roof. 
there may be retrospective in this as well. Um, I mean, Uber are, are trying to put a brave face on it, but it, it's, it's bad news for, I think, all companies that are app-based, gig economy, if you want to use that word, um, that, 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 uh, that have claimed up to date that they're, 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 um, they have self-employed people working for them rather than uh, employed or workers. This is a big Simon, announcement. Doesn't, doesn't this just indicate that we've had such uncertainty around about what is self-employment, exactly. what is a worker, what is an employee for too yeah, long? Exactly. We need, we need I, clarity to use a phrase that makes I mean, oh, You ain't going to get it. I, I, for many years, besieged the government to... Um, define what they thought self-employment was, but they refused to do so. Thanks, uh, fiddle. And, 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 you know, there, there was a lot of talk when um, Theresa May was in government about bringing in new definitions, but nothing ever happened. And at the moment, it's the courts that are deciding. And the courts are now deciding pretty decisively that these gig economy co companies, uh, if you're working for them, you are not self-employed. What does it mean for self-employment? That's the question. Well, uh, I mean, you know, some people will believe that self, the, the traditional form of self-employment is not gig economy. But there are a lot of people working in the gig economy who are doing it for the very reasons that self-employment people are self for the flexibility to work when they want to work, etc. cetera. Um, and, um, you know, if you talk to an Uber driver, the vast majority you talk to say they like being self-employed. So this is this is going to change a lot. And I, li um, I like being self-employed. Indeed. Um, Declan likes being, you like being self-employed, yeah. don't you, Declan? Yeah, I just uh, don't like bosses who are talking to people. So self-employed <laughs> suits me down to the ground. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have a choice. They sacked me. Yeah. <laughs> No doubt Uber will uh, put more and more effort into having driverless cars now because they it gets rid of that problem for them. That'll make the whole thing moot, won't it? Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, uh, imagine the, when you have driverless cars. We, we, uh, yeah. I think it was Tim mentioned the, yeah. uh, how the, the car industry focuses now on the, the driverless experience. Yeah. If you're able to have a driverless car turn up and pick you up and bring you whatever you want yeah think of all the things you could have done in the back of that car that you couldn't do when you were yeah. driving you steady carry on, on steady on <laughs> you can <laughs> carry on Listen, I, 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 you can carry on with your work you could have a little mobile office turn up you yeah, could get your yeah. hair done you could have your breakfast on the way in to yeah. work if we work in offices in the future ever, ever, um, again. ever I, again i i would just i cannot conceive of driverless cars working in london I mean, it's bad enough yeah. manually driving cars around London. Well, you can't I mean, afford a car in London anyway. How, yeah, how exactly. Drive London. I think it'd be more polite if there were driverless cars in London. <laughs> it'd be a nicer experience for everyone. <laughs> Just thinking back to our, our conversation with, with Tim and with Darren, a couple of things struck me about it. Um, all that fantastic research and innovation that's going on in Cambridge, in Oxford, in uh, Shoreditch, how do we get that done? in the rest of the country? How do we spread some of that out uh, around the rest of the UK? That's one of the challenges that uh, the government is facing. And we may hear something about it in the budget when the Chancellor starts talking about his growth plan. But 
on that shopping list that both Tim and Darren said were necessary, the incubators, the accelerators, that's not going to be covered by an £800 million love child of Dominic Cummings, the British ARPA or whatever they decide to call it. Um, the other point, and it was a really important one from Tim, and it's been discussed in other contexts this week. We've spent so long talking about cities and how we build up cities. We haven't spent anywhere near as much talking time talking about how you build up towns, how you build up the surviving countryside. So how do you take the success in Cambridge and use it to boost the countryside? How does it improve the more traditional industries like farming? Uh, Cambridgeshire, East Anglia is the wheat basket of England. You've got horse racing just over the border uh, in uh, Newmarket. And then when you look at Cambridge, you ask, how do you manage and plan growth in the future? The you talk to anyone from Cambridge in the last 15 years and they're going to complain about transport and they're going to complain about house prices. And they are, you know, one is shockingly bad, the other is shockingly high. And that's a function of uh, all this great growth happening in an unplanned way. Um, Declan, all of that really good points. And interesting, you should say that because I talked to uh, Chi Onwura, the MP for Newcastle Central this week, and she was saying, some of exactly that that you have been saying. We've got to be able to spread uh, this the skills around. Uh, leveling out. Spread the work, leveling out, yeah, possibly. Uh, and we need to be able to do that. She's got a vision for Newcastle. We'll actually be talking uh, to small businesses in Newcastle in a um, couple of weeks' time, I think just after the budget. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what they say there. But, Next but week... There, sorry, there's just to say there is a, t a technological and economic benefit in having clusters of expertise the risk of leveling up is that you dilute down the effectiveness of the cluster yeah very that's another very good point um so yes lots to think about lots to talk about uh Declan Simon thank you very much indeed next week we'll be in Bristol if you'd like to hear that interview with Chi from uh Newcastle the MP for Newcastle Central then it like all our other conversations interviews podcasts etc uh, they are on backinbusiness.org.uk. If you want to take part, comment, tell us your experiences as a small business, then please email. Contact us at backinbusiness.org.uk. You can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter at business underscore backin. And we'll see you next week. And thanks to everybody, Tim, Darren, Simon, Declan, and of course, Ben, George and Ollie, without whom none of this would happen. And of course, Mickey. 